This is the parasha where Yitzchak gets a little older. And uh, so I thought I would read you a list of you know you're old when. And I don't know how many of these I can relate to, but I thought some of you might enjoy them. If, you, if, you, if, if any of these resonate with you, just give a little here, here, okay? I, I'm just curious. <laughs> you know you're old when you take a metal detector to the beach. You wear black socks with sandals. You know the, what the word equity means. You can't remember the last time you laid on the floor to watch television. Your ears are hairier than your head. You, you get into a heated argument about pension plans. You got cable specifically for the Weather Channel. You can go bowling without drinking. Maybe here it would be curling. You have a party and the neighbors don't even realize it. You are proud of your lawnmower. Your arms are almost too short to read the newspaper. You sing along with the elevator music. You would rather go to work than stay home sick. You constantly talk about the price of gasoline. You enjoy hearing about other people's operations. (laughs) You consider coffee one of the most important things in life. I'm getting a little old, I guess. Um, You make an appointment to see the dentist. You no longer think of speed limits as a challenge. I read those this last week, and I thought they were kind of amusing. I hope, I hope those were all very uh, edifying for you. Let, let's look at the, uh, the parasha first. In, um, this is parashat toldot. Uh, toldot is the Hebrew word for like generations or chronicles or records of. Um, there's a, I believe there is a toldot being written for each one of us in the heavens. It talks about the, the books being opened. That's where your toldot are read. Uh, that's where your, your legacy is, uh, is reviewed. And uh, that's the name of this parsha. So uh, the reason is because it begins by saying, these are the toldot of Yaakov, I mean of Yitzchak, sorry. So these are like, these are the main accounts of Isaac life, Isaac's life. This is the, uh, the core of the, uh, the uh, legacy that he left. Th- this is the parsha where we learn that the way to a man's heart is truly through his stomach. Isaac was all about, you know, if you can go out there and get me a really nice steak, you're going to get my blessing. So we can remember that. If you want someone's blessing, just, just see what they really like and, and, and uh, cook them that. Yep. In... Um, you could say that Esau is like the quintessential loser of the Bible. I mean, he's just, he just seems kind of dumb. I think a lot of people think that. You know, I mean, who, who, would, who would sell their birthright for a little bowl of lentils? You know, he just seems like kind of a big, loud, blustering type of character, uh, Probably a real manly man. I mean, he's covered in hair. He likes to be out there in the in the wild, going hunting and stuff. Um, this is what's that? He probably snorted. Yeah, Genevieve. Okay. He probably belched without saying "excuse me" too. I mean, the, the, this is the, the public image. Of, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> This is, this is the pop image of Esau, right? And I mean, he, he, he went down in history as the man who sold his birthright. And even when he sought for it with repentance and tears, it says in Hebrews 12, no grace there. Um, and it says, you know, be careful not to be like this guy. You know, don't, don't fall into immorality. Don't fall into... Um, it's an interesting Greek term there that actually reflects a Hebrew idea of like crossing the threshold. Don't cross the threshold into paganism or into um, a house that is, uh, has like non-Torah influences. That's kind of the idea there. This is Esau. But sometimes I wonder. I mean, it's easy to point back to this guy and be like, yeah, Esau was one bad dude. You know, he sold his birthright. He despised it. But I, I wonder, what, what is the birthright today? What, what is my birthright? What is your birthright? What is our birthright as the body of Messiah? And, and I wonder if we don't have a little Esau in us. 
This is, this is how I would look at it. Maybe Esau represents the, like the carnal man, the, uh, the man who lives by his old nature. Um, hey, we, we, we each have that in us, right? And uh, thankfully Yeshua came to like, start to deal with that and, and restore us to the image of God and, and bring us back to uh, the Father's likeness. Uh, but I, I can say for myself that I have days when I definitely have an Esau inside of me who wants to get out and express himself. Um, yeah, sometimes I, I do belch without saying excuse me, for instance. Thankfully, mar- marriage has really helped solve that problem. No, I'm just joking. That's maybe not a, the best example. But, um, <laughs> but, but all that to say, you know, like Esau is the... The hairy guy. You know, sometimes the hairiness in Scripture symbolizes, like, animal wildness. That, uh, that part of us that just lives by animal impulses, or that acts like a really juvenile little child. You know how children can be? Maybe that idea. A man's man, yeah. I remember I read The Latent Power of the Soul when I was 17 or so, and it really hit me. Because he said a lot of our religious expression is just our souls operating and looking spiritual, but the cross has to be applied to that. Was it, I, I can't remember, it's been years, but he said like, the cross has to be applied to that. That is to die so the spirit can flow through us. Something to that effect, hey? Yeah, right. That's definitely that idea. Right. Maybe he was still young enough that he hadn't thought about what, the, what, the, what that birthright was all about in the long term, hey? Sometimes it's easy to do that in your youth, especially. You just kind of you just kind of run wild and do what you feel like doing, and you don't think about the long-term consequences. And then they hit you one day. Ouch. Yeah. Here, here are a couple. Um, I mean, so you know, we could we could ask, well, what are some different ways that we sell our birthright? You know, when I say birthright, uh, what what does birthright mean to you? Let's maybe start there. What it says is he despised it, so it was a problem. The problem wasn't with him being cognitive of the birthright and its ramifications, the problem was him not valuing it in his actions. It, or that, that's how I would see it. I wonder if the concept of birthright, the core of it is like understanding your place in the family, um, understanding what's offered to you, what's yours in, uh, and you know, with regards to us and our covenant with the Almighty, it's understanding what's offered to you in the covenant. What is yours in the covenant? Maybe that could be part of the, the concept of the birthright. Here, here, here are a couple ways that I'm just going to go on and I'm going to hit some different sectors of the, uh, the religious world. Here are some ways that I see the birthright being despised today. Um, when people deny Yeshua, whether that be outright deny Him so that they can fit in with mainstream Judaism or even go through a conversion to rabbinic Judaism and they don't outright deny Him but they hide the fact that they're believers in Him. They become ashamed of the Son of Man. That is, that is despising our birthright. That is becoming Esau. Um, and you know what? There is a trend in the broader Messianic Jewish community towards that. Um, I think that is, a, that is an Esau-ish trait um, I, for, for us. I don't think any of us here are in danger of that. It's not like we're tempted to go to the Chabad shul down the street and, and start going towards conversion because, hey, we're the only synagogue in town. It's kind of nice. Hey, we have some things we don't have to deal with here. But, um, <laughs> but what, you know, that, that does start somewhere. And this is something that we can all be aware of. As we're returning to the Torah, as we're beginning to understand the whole series of covenants from beginning to end, um, we never want to lose touch with the centrality of Yeshua. Because ultimately it's our faith in Mashiach, it's our testimony of his salvation that is our birthright. So when we lose the doctrine of the centrality of Messiah, we begin to lose our birthright. When we lose a new covenant orientation... Some people say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm only reading the Torah right now. I've just kind of put the, uh, the apostolic scriptures on the shelf. Or, or Paul, you know, I have some issues with Paul, so I'm just not reading Paul right now. That, that, is a, that is setting yourself on a trajectory to possibly losing your birthright. And maybe, maybe people would say, well, you know, the new covenant, it's just a renewal of the old covenant. So when I read the old covenant, it's really the new covenant. And au contraire, what, what he said in Jeremiah and Hebrews is, I am making a new covenant with them, and it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. So this covenant is a new covenant, and it's renewal of the previous covenants, and our birthright is that new covenant place in the family of Israel, in the father's family 
That is your birthright. And the previous covenants are also. You can see that you know, when we begin forgetting that we're all about the Besorah, all about the gospel of Messiah, we may be beginning to lose touch with our birthright. You know, as a congregation, for instance, here in Prince Albert, yes, we, we stand for the relevance of Torah in uh, the life of the believer today. We fly that banner strong and free, but we, have to, we also want to never forget that we're all about Yeshua. We're all about his salvation. That is the common ground that we have with the greater body of Messiah. And uh, he's saving us all from our sins. He continues to do that. Um, the, the, the second area where I can see that we, as uh, believers, can sometimes begin to uh, lose our birthright is when we minimize the role of the Ruach HaKodesh, the, uh, the spirit of holiness. And you know what? It's, it's easy to do. Because uh, if, if we just have a religious form, for instance, even uh, let's say when we pray liturgically, it's possible to just go through the motions and be so out of touch with the power of Elohim, with, with the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh. And, I, uh, and heaven forbid that would ever happen with us or with the, the Messianic Jewish movement on a whole. Um, it's, it's, it's so easy to fall into. Uh, you know, Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12-14, to 14, he doesn't just say, you know, be lackadaisical about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, these are things to desire. These are things to pursue after. Especially, which gift? The gift of prophecy. That is your birthright. The gift of prophecy to hear clearly from the Almighty, to communicate His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's your birthright. That is our birthright as a congregation. And uh, you know, it may make you a little unpopular with some people, especially here in Canada. We're so polite. We're so politically correct. When, when someone begins to operate in the gift of prophecy, it can make people a little like a little uncomfortable. But that's okay. Yeshua made people uncomfortable. But he had a testimony in the end. So um, that, that's an area where we can always be, be, uh, be on guard against. Um, birthright. The uh, concept of birthright is very closely bound up with the concept of leadership. The oldest in the family in that Middle Eastern culture received a double portion of the inheritance, but why? Was it just so he had some extra cash to count um, in his spare time? No, it's because uh, he was the leader of the clan. And the leader of a clan has uh, significantly higher responsibilities, uh, higher stress level. When there are problems, everybody goes to him. And so it makes sense that he would also receive a greater share of the resources of the clan so that he wouldn't be all tied up with some of those, uh, with some of those, uh, those, uh, those concerns, right? And um, that, that is something that we, I don't think we can like, stress enough. Birthright equals leadership. And what, what's, the, what's the heart of leadership? We talked about this in, uh, when we were studying Shimon Kifa in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, uh, be leaders, as elders of the congregation, how do you be leaders? Uh, you be examples of the flock. We talked a couple weeks ago about how that's something that every one of us are called to. You know, focusing our, on our observance of the Torah, growing in our discipleship, becoming those examples so that the Father can bring people to you to, so you can mentor them, so that they can look up to you as an example, so that they can learn not just from your words, but from your life. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I, I look at us in this room and I think, wow, I like... I, I totally see that in this congregation. And uh, that, that's the concept of leadership. That is your birthright. Uh, Greg Ristalka pointed out to me a couple months ago that leadership equals influence. And you know what? It's true. If you're not influencing anyone, you're also not a very effective leader. To the degree that you influence the people in your life, to that degree you're a leader. So you know if you're a drug dealer and you're selling people drugs. You're a leader. You're leading people to addictions. You're influencing them in that direction. And of course, the inverse is true when it comes to righteousness, right? Um, we're not pushing that. We're, uh, we're pushing something that's actually good for people here. But that, that's the concept there. Here, here's the thing. Sometimes when we come to the Torah, we begin to see, you know what, there's some differences between us and the greater body of Messiah, just like there is between every denomination and every stream of thought in the body of Messiah. But sometimes people will see that and they'll say, you know what, we, uh, we're just going to have to disconnect from uh, the Christian world. We uh, don't have anything in common. Um, we're leaving the whole church behind, etc. And you know what? There's a place for, for differentiating. There's a place for um, knowing what your, what your distinctives are, right? But the problem is, 
Sometimes when we as a movement totally detach from the body of Messiah, in the areas that we live, we lose all our influence in the body of Messiah. And in the process, we lose that place of leadership that Yeshua is calling us as congregations to. You know, he is calling us to lead the body of Messiah in returning to the Torah, in, in having an Old Testament revival, shall we say. And when we totally unplug, we, we miss that. So, you know, that's an area of our birthright that sometimes I feel large sections of the Messianic community are despising and they're missing out on. And uh, I don't want to do that. That's why I go to the ministerial in Prince Albert. That's why I'm, I've really been working hard up front to maintain warm relationships. Not because I agree on a doctrinal level with everything. Not because our practice is even closely similar sometimes. But because Yeshua is calling us as a community to be leaders and to be that example of what original discipleship looks like. Yeah, and you know, you will never know the influence that you have on a person's life this side of, this side of the kingdom. It's, yeah, I mean, sometimes someone will come up to you and say, uh, okay, I'll tell you a little story that my brother Colin just told me yesterday. He, he bumped into a pastoral couple out in uh, Kenora, Yorkton area where he lives, and they actually used to pastor here in, uh, they used to be here in Prince Albert. And my and anyway, this, uh, this lady said, Oh, um, I used to know your dad. He came up and spoke at a conference here in Prince Albert like 20 years ago or something. And we were going through a really hard time. We had some family problems. And he spoke a word into my life about Joseph. And that has never left me. Like 20 years later, this lady was able to say, You know what? Your dad spoke something into her life 20 years ago and I've never forgotten it. That's been a mainstay. Yeah. And you, you know these people, Hannah. Um, down, down in the, that area now. So anyway, it's just, that's an example. Hey, of like you just you never know what the father is going to speak through. Have any of you had times where someone said, you know, um, you said this however many years ago, and I've never forgotten it, and you're like, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> I have that all the time. Um, well, not all the time, but several times, and it's actually kind of encouraging. Not that I've forgotten it. What a great example of your birthright, huh? Wow, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there is a trend, I think it's somewhat disturbing, in some sectors of the Messianic Jewish movement towards becoming more exclusivistic, more of an exclusivistic Jewish club, shall I say. Uh, it's a trend that is in total contradistinction to Paul's theology of full Gentile inclusion. I'm afraid when we succumb to that approach too, we are despising our birthright as leaders in the body of Messiah who are called to help non-Jewish believers see their place in the family, their membership in the commonwealth of Israel, their, their full covenant rights and responsibilities. So, heaven forbid the Messianic community will ever be an exclusivistic Jewish club. And I know I'm a voice on that regularly, and you're probably like, why does he keep hitting that? Because... We don't seem to be facing that here. I'm saying that as a voice to the broader Messianic community. That is our birthright. Um, Here's here's something uh, fascinating along those lines. Uh, Birthright equaling leadership, uh, mentoring other people. There is a very interesting Hebrew verb used for prayer in this parsha. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. Genesis 25, 21. It says... uh, Isaac prayed to Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh answered him, and uh, Rivka, his wife, conceived. The word, therefore, prayed to is um, vayatar. You can say yatar. And um, the root there is like atar. It's spelled uh, aleph, and uh, then two more letters. You know, I think it's... Uh, Tav Rash, if I'm not mistaken, but don't quote me on that. But anyway, the, uh, this word is like translated as like beseeched or pleaded with or supplicated. There are quite a few different words there. It doesn't just mean prayed. This is like serious praying going on here. This is like when you get down on your face and you really pray from, pray from your guts, if I could say it like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's that kind of prayer. Okay, here's the interesting thing. Um, What's the name of our congregation in Hebrew? It's Crown of Messiah in English, but what's the Hebrew equivalent of that? I don't use the Hebrew equivalent as often because we live in an English-speaking culture here, but it's Ateret Mashiach. Can we say Ateret Mashiach? Yeah, a crown is an Atara. 
The idea is like surrounding, going around. So when we say crown, we're not just saying like a diadem crown, we're saying surrounding or going around. So when we, when we say like a Teret Mashiach, that being our tag, it suggests that we're a group that is all about Yeshua. That like we gather around our, our, our Savior, the Messiah. That's the idea. Anyway, at, like atara as a crown and this verb for prayer are related in Hebrew. They're not the same word, they're cognate words. One of them starts with an ayn and one starts with an aleph, but they're related words. So whatever this, whatever this thing is that Isaac is doing, I believe that that is something in our spiritual DNA as a community of disciples here in Prince Albert. Um, I, I, I um, suggested the name Crown of Messiah for us as a congregation because in prayer I felt strongly like that's what Yeshua was calling us. So it's kind of one of those things where I'm like, okay, this is cool. He gave us a name. Now, why did he give us that name? What does it mean, right? And that's the journey that we continue to be on. And we may only fully understand it as the years unfold. So our name as a congregation is linked to Isaac praying for Rebekah because she was barren and Yahweh answering those prayers. What, What could that mean for us as a congregation? It could mean that we are called to pray, not just to pray on a preliminary level, but to go deep in prayer. Not only on Shabbat, but on a daily basis, as, as families, as individuals. Um, could it also mean that when we see barrenness, when we see unproductivity, when we see unfruitfulness, that is an area where we really zero in on and we start to pray into. What, what does that look like in terms of our mission as a community? Our mission as a community is the same as Adam and Eve's mission in the very beginning. What did the Father say? He said, um, go and be productive. Make a whole bunch of yourselves, essentially. And what did Yeshua say to us as a community of disciples? Go into all the nations and be productive. Make your disciples. Make a whole bunch of yourselves. Like, fill the planet with disciples. And uh, that's our job here. So, uh, you know, when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to that in terms of our birthright, we could say that it, part of our birthright is to pray that Yeshua will send us people to disciple, that he will send us new believers so we can mentor them. So whenever the Father sends us a new believer or someone comes into our midst, our birthright as a community is to love on those people, to fully embrace them, to begin to teach them the ways of Yahweh, the ways of His Torah. And hopefully we're practicing His Torah in our own lives, of course, because He can't teach what you're not doing. That's our birthright. Our birthright is to pray that many people in the city will come to Yeshua, that the Father will give many people in the city as quality disciples to our master. And you know what? I, I hope that he, uh, he sends some of them our way too. I hope that we get to disciple some of them. Um, something I've, I've sensed from Abba for us as a congregation is that we are in a season where we are going deep. If you could compare us to a tree, this is a season where our roots, roots are going deep in the earth of his Torah, in, um, in, 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 in quality discipleship. Much like a tree, for those first three years, they, they, they flick the fruit off. They don't let the fruit on it because it's not time to be productive. It's time for that tree to put down deep roots and to develop that, that infrastructure that will support the tree in hard times. And then, fourth year, boom, like that tree goes into production. So, you know what? Sometimes we come here and we're not a very big group, right? We hardly qualify as a mega synagogue, if there's such a thing as a mega synagogue, I don't know. But that doesn't phase me. Seriously, if I came here and I was the only one here, I wouldn't care. Because our only job is to be faithful to Messiah's call. He called us to gather on Shabbat in His name. He called us to pray to the Father. He called us to study the Holy Torah. And you know what? We do our part. That is qualitative growth. We're growing in quality. And you know what? In the Father's timing, He is going to move and He's going to begin sending us people when He deems it time that we can begin to mentor and we'll begin to see quantitative growth. That, you know, with the early Jerusalem community, who added to the congregation daily those who are being saved? It wasn't Peter and his big church growth techniques, was it? It was Yahweh who added to the congregation. So, you know, that's our, uh, that's our official growth policy here. And where does it start? It starts with prayer. It starts with praying that people in the city will come to Yeshua, that disciples will be raised up, and hey, you know, we can say, Hinenu, Father, here we are. If you want to use us, um, we're available. So that, that, crown of Messiah, is your birthright. That is the birthright, I believe, of every Messianic congregation on the planet. And may we never, uh, may we never despise that.
Actually, there's another concept. Uh, there's another concept in here related to that. In uh, Genesis 25, verse 12, we have a little. Uh, we're Saskatchewan people, you know. We're uh, we're a farming community, so uh, I, I thought we'd appreciate this verse. Let's try um, maybe 26. Let's try 26:12. Genesis 26:12 is going to work a little better here. <clears throat> it says, "Now Isaac sowed in that land." So, you know, he got his tractor out and he got out there in the field and he put in the crop, right? He sowed in the land <laughs> and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. He got a hundred. So for every bushel of seed that he put in, he got a hundred bushels of crop back. That's pretty impressive, especially for that, for that time in farming. What's interesting is that Yeshua tells a parable about the word and the word going into different types of people, four different types of people. And he says, you know what? There's one type of person who receives the word and he goes on to like produce a massive crop. He goes on to produce a hundred times as much. He's re- he was referencing the Torah there. He was referencing this portion. What does that look like for us as individuals, as families, as a, as a congregation? Could it be saying that, you know, if we are like going to go into optimal production... In the Father's timing, each of us may be going on to influence 100 people for Messiah. Would it be too much to assume that? I would like it if each of us could influence at least 100 people. You know what? We're a, we're a body. Each of us has different parts. So maybe, maybe you or you won't be influencing that 100 people. But what if us as a congregation, what if that was our birthright? To, to, uh, to be uh, productive 100 times as much. How many, how many of us are there here? Let's just count, and then we'll multiply that by 100, and we can set that as our, as our impact goal. So there are 16 of us here. If we're, like, if we're, we're going to become productive as we continue to pursue Yeshua, and that would equal influencing how many people in the city? 16 times 100? Sounds good. Yep. If each of us influence two and they go on. But can you see what I'm getting at? Like, our birthright as a community is to significantly impact this city for Messiah, to bring many people to Him. And, uh, you know, the Father is the one who draws people. Yahweh is the one who saves and adds to the congregation. What's our job? To be available. Yes. To focus on our own growth. And uh, you know what? Hey, cheers. We're doing, I, I believe we're doing great in that area. Like, here we are today, right? I, I, I want to tell you a story. This is totally off notes, but it so fits right now with what I think the Holy Spirit's communicating. Um, several years ago, about three years ago, uh, Abba spoke a, ver- like a series of scriptures to me very clearly and strongly. Um, they included ones like 1 Timothy, where it says that Elohim isn't willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Um, where Yeshua said, Ask and it will be given to you. Uh, similarly, Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And uh, what Abba, what, uh, Abba gave us like a call to begin praying for specific people to come to salvation. To ask that those, those people from the nations would be given to Yeshua. Not just a general prayer, but to start targeting specific people. And he said three people. Target, start targeting three people and pray for them every day for salvation. And uh, we did that for several months. And it was like I could feel the power of the Spirit of Holiness start, like, start to really flow through us when we began praying like that. And um, then um, we slacked off and, I don't know, we just stopped praying like that for a year or two. And it's like, hello, Esau, I'm right here, you know? Yeah, you too? Wow, thank God. <laughs> You, so on your walks, you would pray for three people? Yeah, yeah, we'd pray for the same three people every And within a year, they came to salvation? Within a year. Wow, hallelujah. Wow. We haven't seen that yet. But just in the last couple of months, Genevieve and I have felt very challenged in that area. We felt like, you know what, I gave you a torch and you dropped the torch. It's time to go back and pick that up and rekindle it. So we've started doing that again. Um, we actually have more than three people right now. But we have, a, we have like a salvation hit list. And we have people on our hit list, and we pray for them every, every morning. You know, with, with the help of God. I, I don't know, maybe I've forgotten a morning or two, but it's been really good for the last couple months. And man, I have felt it. Like, it feels like we are doing something real for the kingdom. And um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe the Father will be speaking something like that to you, and maybe something that you'll want to start doing. Just praying every day for some specific people's salvation, and just praying until it happens. Um, you know, we have people in PA that we're praying for along those lines. So, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we can just start to get a little dangerous. Let's start writing up hit lists, you know what I'm saying? To uh, target people who are controlled by the enemy and see them rescued and brought into the kingdom of light. You know, 
the fourth area of our birthright that I can see is uh, is conceptually tied to this this third one we we're just talking about. In Hebrews seven, it says that the quote lesser is blessed by the greater, um, like the littler person is blessed by the bigger person. Um, however, that works. I don't know, but what I can see there is to the degree that you are answering Yeshua's call to be a servant leader, and every one of us are called to that, you will bless the people in your life. You will bless them. And that doesn't just mean them saying, oh, you know, I just get warm fuzzies, you're such a blessing. It's like verbally praying for people, whether it be in your own personal prayer times or whether it be uh, at Arab Shabbat or to their faces. It's praying for your family, praying for the people in your life. That is your birthright as, as a servant leader. And uh, we, see this, we, we see this concept really spelled out here. Genesis 27. The whole chapter is about the power of a father's blessing. About what happens in a son's life. In this case specifically, of course, mother's blessings are powerful. You know, they, they, they're operative in daughter's lives also. But this chapter is about the, fa- the power of a father's blessing in his son's, in his, in his son's life. And um, for, for all of us who are, who are parents, this is your birthright to pray for your children regularly and your grandchildren, to bless them with powerful blessings. Um, here's the question. What's the operative element here? Read Genesis 27, 37. This, this really hit me. This is Isaac here. He says, it says, but, but Isaac replied to Esau, Genesis 27, 37, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants, and with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do for you, my son? Like, that almost sounds like Isaac thinks he's the, the Almighty or something. Of course he doesn't, but you know what I'm saying? Like, Isaac knew the power of a blessing. He was able to say, I have sustained Jacob with grain and new wine. I have made the members of his family subservient to him, simply by blessing my son with this. Like, he knew the authority, the, 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 uh, the authority given by Elohim to a parent to bless a child. And you know what? That is the authority that each of us have as parents. And not just for physical children. The Father sends spiritual children into your life. He sends people to you that you can pray for, that you can bless with powerful blessings. What did Paul say? He said, um, to, the, to the proportion of your faith, prophesy. So like, faith is the operative element in, um, in operating prophetically. And um, Isaac, was Isaac operating in a prophetic gifting in this scenario? Very much so. He was speaking into his son's future. Why was he able to do that? Because he had faith. How does faith come into our lives? Through the word of Messiah. So um, just, you can see that flow, hey, as we, as we hear the word of Messiah, that that is an authority that you have been given. Your faith grows. You are empowered to begin to pray powerfully, bless powerfully, and, um, and begin to move in your birthright. Yeah. Um, fifth area of birthright this, is, this one is specifically for people who are Jewish, who have a, an ethnic Jewish heritage. Um, sometimes when Jewish people come to faith in Yeshua, they forsake their birthright. Um, they, uh, they assimilate into Gentile Christian culture. Um, I don't know, I guess they never read Romans 9, where Paul says very specifically that physical Israel... Their birthright continues to include the covenants, the glory, the temple service, the giving of the Torah... So for ethnic Jews, this is your birthright. And coming to faith in Yeshua should not make you an Esau that causes you to leave the Torah behind or treat it as a, as a light thing. Au contraire. Romans 9 says that the covenants continue to belong to Israel. That means the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. That means the tokens of those covenants, which include things like Shabbat, circumcision, binding to fill in. The, the, this is part of the birthright of ethnically Jewish believers. And, sixthly, it's also, part, it's also the birthright of believers who come from the nations. Uh, what, what did Paul say in Ephesians 2? He said, you know, you were, you were, you're from the nations, you were strangers, but you are members of the commonwealth of, um, of Italy now. Uh, <laughs> of Israel. You're members of the commonwealth of Israel. You are... Um, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, but now you're not. Was he just talking about the new covenant there? He said covenants. So he meant those earlier ones, hey? 
So, you know, for, for us as the body of Christ, when we read church history, we have a very long and sad story of, of dis, despising our birthright in the covenant of a- Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the covenant with Moses. And you know what? The Father is bringing us back. Praise His name. He is... He's saving us from, like, Esau the loser that wants to take over... that wants to take over... Um, the whole Christian world. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Okay, here's, here's another one. Here's a question for you. What, according to this parsha, is the blessing of Abraham? This is a very practical one. It actually has to do with, I'm going to give you a little hint, real estate. And you can, you can check it out in uh, Genesis chapter 28. Isaac's blessing to Jacob as he dispatches them, him to uh, go get a wife. Genesis 28, verse 4, specifically. What is the blessing of Abraham? Yes, the land of Israel. Possessing the land of Israel. So if believers, whether they be from Jewish or non-Jewish backgrounds, are, uh, they're part of this covenant of promise, and they're recipients of the blessing of Abraham, then is the land of Israel to be important to all of us? Oh, Yeah. That isn't just for those uh, secular Zionists over there or physically Jewish people, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Pauline theology would suggest very clearly that's, that's all of our inheritance. Um, that also includes Gaza, by the way. You know, the Gaza Strip. Yes. Um, Genesis 26, verses 1 to 5 is where Yahweh appears to Isaac. It's his first, um, his first theophany where the Almighty appears to him. And he says, I'm going to give you all these lands. And the West, yes, the West Bank and the East Bank and Gaza. You can read that in Genesis 26, verses 3 to 4. So when a predominantly secular Israeli government bows to the demands of an international politically, political body that would divide Jerusalem and give the heartland of Israel to a people that have never in history had a national identity, that government is displaying Esau-ish tendencies and is despising its national birthright. And what do we do? Do we stand at a distance and point fingers? No, we repent for Israel and we pray that the Father will raise up a righteous government in Israel that will not have any Esau-ish tendencies that will, uh, that will value its birthright in all the land of Israel, which of course includes uh, Yesha, like Judea, Samaria, and, and, and the Gaza Strip. And then seventhly, in 26 verse 5, we see that Abraham had like a... There were two main elements to his relationship with the Almighty. And this is our birthright also, because we are, we are children of Abraham as our forefather in the faith. It says, firstly, that he listened, he shamad, to the voice of Elohim. So your birthright is to have a personal relationship with the Almighty, to hear his voice clearly for yourself, and maybe even for your community sometimes. Again, it's that prophetic gifting um, as a birthright. And the second half was uh, a very practical one. Genesis 26, verse 5. Yeah, that's right, he did. Specifically, uh, he says, my commandments, my laws, and my, my teachings, my Torahs. So he says, my mitzvot, my Torahs. And then another word for laws there, eh? That is our birthright. The law. You know, there, there, is a, there is a spirit of this age that is lawless, that is anarchistic, and sometimes it takes the form of saying, you know what? It's all about relationship with God. Religion, bad. Relationship, good. Therefore, you know, all the rules and regulations in the Bible, poo-poo on them. That's all done away with. Sometimes, yes, that is anarchy. Sometimes that lawless spirit of this age creeps into the body of Messiah before we even realize it. And I could really go off on that one. But just to say, yes, relationship is important. Hearing the voice of the Almighty for ourselves, and so are His rules and regulations. So you know what? We want to hold on very tightly to both of those strands, don't we? Because that is, that, is, that is our birthright. The, the, the movement today of uh, believers returning to like, the roots of our faith, it's often called the Hebrew Roots Movement. I, I think like, one of the flagship verses of the Hebrew Roots Movement should be uh, Genesis chapter 26. Which one is it? 18. Genesis 26, 18 says that uh, th- those wells that the Philistines had stopped up with earth, that his father... Abraham had dug, he went back to those wells, he redug them, and he called them by the names that his father called them. That is what we're doing. Those ancient covenants, 
Those are wells, deep wells. And there is spiritual power in those covenants. And we have disconnected from that. And he's bringing us back. We're redigging those ancient wells. And what are we doing? We are, we are returning to Hebraic terminology. Why is that? Because we're calling things by the names our fathers called them. If, if Yeshua was his original name, then we're going to call him that. Yeah. So, you know, Isaac was a true son of Abraham. And we are called as a generation to be true sons and true daughters of Abraham. To redig those ancient wells, to call things by the names that our father called them. That you could say is like the context for Hebrew study, right? That's why we have Hebrew liturgy. That's why we use Hebrew names. Even though sometimes they sound funny and we stumble over them because we don't know how to pronounce them. It's part of the fun, right? It's part of learning. It's part of being spiritual Isaacs in our generation. Um, let's look for the next, uh, I'd say, 10 minutes at uh, 1 John. I'd just like to look at a couple concepts that, that come up very often in, uh, in Yohanan's writings. Uh, he uses a series of terms, you could say nomenclature, that aren't, aren't as common in the rest of the apostolic scriptures. I'll, I'll list 10 of them for you, and then we're going to look at each one of those briefly. And I'll, I'll, I'll just set them for you in their original Hebraic context. Life, fellowship, light, truth, commandments, word, Walking as he walked, anti-Messiah, sin, love, and hatred. These are some of the big themes that pop up over and over again in Yohanan's writings. And if we read these in a, uh, like a Greco-Roman Gentile context, we're going to miss the heart of it because Yohanan was a traditional Jew who, uh, who thought and communicated in, uh, in, in Hebrew thought. Okay, let's look at the first one. Life. He talks about life. He talks about how Yeshua is the word of life. He talks about how we're transferred from death to life. Um, it's a big theme. Here's, here's, a, here's a scripture from the Tanakh. It's one of the earlier references to life that gives us a, a peg to this concept. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 to 47, where Moses said, Take to your heart all the words with which I'm warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this Torah, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. So the Torah is life. So whenever we read that term life, we can know that Yochanan was referring to something that was connected with the Torah. Uh, Fellowship. You know, the pop definition of fellowship often means like sharing a light lunch, you know, potluck after service, maybe engaging in a little chit-chat before we go home and, you know, get ready to watch the Riders game or whatever. Often that's fellowship to us. But the Jewish idea of fellowship is so much deeper than that. It is a very strong word. Um, it's, it's based on the Hebrew word for like a study partner. If you are fellow disciples and you have someone that you study with, that person is your chaver. Everybody say chaver. <clears throat> like study partners or friends in that context are chaverim. Everybody say chaverim. Yeah, like, uh, like Yeshua's disciples when they were sent out two by two, they were chaverim. Each of them had a chaver. They were really tight with each other. They had a strong bond as disciples. Um, the Pharisees, the Pharisees had disciples, and they had close-knit groups. And those groups, each of those groups was called a chavura. Can you say chavura? Yeah, it's like a discipleship group. That's the concept there. And um, that word could also be translated as fellowship. The Pharisees had fellowships. But it wasn't just like some loose, light, chit-chatty thing. These guys were committed to each other. They, uh, they had a very close-knit group. Um, for instance, the Pharisees wouldn't even eat with people who weren't in their chavura. Now, we're not going to become exclusivistic like that, right? But it just gives you an idea of how close-knit they were. That's the idea of fellowship. And um, Yohanan's clearly in state, stated intent in this letter, in, in the very opening lines, is so that we can enter into that Chavura. It is a Chavura that spans generations. It is a Chavura that has our Rabbi Yeshua and his emissaries at its head, and that includes us in this generation. You, you could say that this letter is like entry-level lessons of the Chavura. Studying through this letter is like having Yochanan and the other sages in the Chavura sit you down and take you through your initiation. Hopefully that will give us some, some context for this letter. Um, the next word is light. We, it talks about walking in the light. 
And uh, we read in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, that the commandment, the mitzvah, is a lamp. And what is a light? The Torah is a light. So is walking in the light. Could that have something to do with walking in the parameters of Torah? Oh, yeah. If you believe that the Old Testament is the dictionary of the New Testament, then yes, it does. Um, Truth. Practicing the truth is another theme. What does that look like? What is the truth? I mean, like open season on truth, right? Object, like reality is not objective. Reality is highly subjective. You know, this is, well, this is my truth, right? Maybe it doesn't line up with yours, but they're all true. Is uh, the pop idea today. What is the definition of truth? We find the de- definition of truth again in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. Psalm 119 verse 142 says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your Torah is truth. Psalm 119, 142. So what, does, what is the Bible's definition of truth? The Torah is truth. Yeshua said he's the truth also, didn't he? Could it be that Yeshua and the Torah are a little more inseparable than what we have led to believe? Hmm. Sometimes people say, you know, the law was nailed to the cross. Well, what I would say is, yes, it was nailed to the cross with Yeshua, it was taken down and put in the grave with Yeshua, and it was raised with Yeshua, and the Torah is still with Yeshua, seated at the Father's right hand. Because Yeshua is the Torah. If you take the Torah out of the picture, you take the real, the real Jesus out of the picture, and you're in danger of ending up with some fake substitute, which is a little dangerous. Yeah. Absolutely. You take the Torah out, and I mean, people will fall for all kinds of false versions of Messiah. Yep. Okay, here's one more verse, Psalm 119, 151. You are near Yahweh, and all your mitzvot, all your commandments are truth. Um, commandments is another term that comes up over and over again in Yochanan. Um, like, if you read Yochanan in context, then you have no recourse but to conclude that he's talking about the commandments in the Torah. I'll give you one example. First John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I'm not writing a new mitzvah, a new commandment to you, but an old mitzvah which you've had from the beginning, from Genesis. Uh, first John chapter 2, verse 7. So there, there's, like a, there's a verse that solidly pegs the commandments that he's talking about with the commandments of Torah. And John was very pro-commandment. If, uh, if the Apostle John were around today, he would probably be written off by most as a legalist. He was just so hung up on the rules and regulations. He just kept talking about talking about them, talking about them, you know? John had a problem with Jesus plus. John had a problem with Jesus plus the commandments is, what, is probably what would be said of him today. And may, if that's the case, then may we be spoken of like John would be spoken of today. Um, word, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about abiding in his word. What was the word of God to the first generation of believers? Did it include the Hebrew Bible, which was founded on the Torah? Oh, yeah. Um, next phrase, walking as he walked. 1 John 2, 6, it says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The Hebrew word for walk is halach. And it's the root concept of the Hebrew term halacha, which means how you apply the Torah to your life. How you live out the mitzvot. So when he was talking about walking as he walked, he was talking about doing Torah the way Yeshua did it. Uh, Anti-Messiah, in 1 John 2.18, he specifies there are many anti-Messiahs. So I'm sure that's disappointing for some people who think that... Uh, the current president of the United States is the anti-Messiah. He's, maybe he isn't the anti-Messiah, because according to the Bible, there are many. <laughs> there, are, there, are two, uh, there are two ID tags here, whereby he says we can identify the anti-Messiah. The anti-Messiah denies the Father and the Son. It denies the Messiahship of Yeshua. Um, sad to say, I love Orthodox Jews. I practice some elements from Orthodox Judaism, but this spirit is rampant in Orthodox Judaism, and there was a concerted scheme in the late 1st century and the early 2nd century to eliminate all forms of Messianic Judaism and to really put this, this spirit into power that denies the Messiahship of Yeshua. 
Um, it's just important to note that. It's important to differentiate. There is that spirit out there. That spirit is active in Orthodox Judaism. You can't just say, everything Christian is bad and everything Jewish is good. As some people would maybe sometimes say. Such is not the case. Uh, it takes discernment on both sides of the camp. Um, there's another element to the anti-Messiah spirit that I wonder if it isn't sometimes active in the Christian world. It says the, the anti-Messiah spirit denies that Yeshua came in the flesh. Now let me ask you, when we totally overlook the fact that Yeshua was an ethnic Jew, and then he's going to come back as one, when we overlook the fact that in the flesh Yeshua practiced the Torah and lived an observant lifestyle, when we just kind of like eliminate that part of, of who he was and who he is from our Christology, I, I just I wonder, maybe we're in danger of falling for that spirit. It doesn't outright deny that Yeshua who Yeshua was in the flesh, but it ignores who he was in the flesh. And uh, on all practical levels, it's essentially the same thing. I'm not, I'm not saying, like, uh, pl- please hear me out on here, right? I'm not saying any one of the things that you could think that I'm saying in terms of extremist stuff. I'm just saying the anti-Messiah spirit is out there. Everyone is under attack. And um, let's identify it and avoid that. Yeah. And then finally, sin, according to John, 1 John 3 and 4 is anomia. It's lawlessness, Torahlessness. And love and hatred. He talks here about love and hatred. Love is like... He, he, he pegs it very closely with um, practically helping people in need. I like that. Love is a practical thing. Yeah. I'm looking for to own egg. And I had a little idea, just on a practical level here. What's the classic Jewish toast? The classic Jewish toast. L'chaim, that's correct. And what does it mean? To life. life. Who is the life? He said like, like, Anochi Hachaim. I am the life. Yeah. I I wonder, for us as... As disciples of the Master, when we say Lachaim, could it be that we're also toasting the Master? That we're toasting life in Yeshua? Yeah. I, I'd kind of like to start thinking in those terms. So here's the thing though when you say Lachaim, you're saying to life. But when you say Lachaim, you're saying to the life. And we know who the life is. Yeshua said, I am the life, right? I am the Chaim. So um, I'd like to, st- I-, I propose. That when we propose toasts, we don't say l'chaim, we say l'chaim. Did you hear the difference? There's like a little more of an ah there. L'chaim. We're saying to the life. And we know who the life is. You know, John, he says, the word of life, right? We, we saw him. And anyway, what do you guys think? Think we could start a tradition with that? Okay, cool. Sounds lovely. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.